Welcome to the Continuing Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing promoting participation and mental health in children and youth, Every Moment Counts, and ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act, with our guest, Dr. Susan Basic. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, My name is Dennis Cleary. I'm a senior researcher at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Dr. Sue Basic. Um, Sue, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you became interested in addressing the mental health needs of children and adolescents? Okay, great. Great to be here, Dennis, and happy to be chatting with you. Well, I've been an occupational therapist for over 40 years. Um, All of my clinical experience has been in um, home, school, and community settings. So I've always been a very community-based OT. I'm a professor emerita, which means I'm retired from uh, teaching at Cleveland State University, where I taught for 34 years. And in terms of mental health, um, I guess I always took very seriously Um, OT's roots, that we believe in the use of occupation to promote health, both physical and mental. And so all throughout my my clinical career, I always tuned into the mental health needs of the children I served, you know, children with food refusal issues. I hated them um, referred to as behavior kids or behavior feeding. They were children who really were struggling in terms of their mental well-being related to their relationship with their mouth, Mm -hmm. with the feeder, with food. Um, So I've always been very interested in mental health as a part of who we are as OTs. I I really don't like it being separated. Um, And then in 2000, um, I was invited to an AOTA think tank meeting, um, Barb... um, Barbara Hanft and Leslie Jackson, leaders at AOTA, brought together 20 OTs for this two-day think tank meeting, thinking about what is our role related to children's mental health. And the impetus was the Surgeon General's report in 1999 on mental health. And he called for um, reducing stigma and more attention to mental health promotion and prevention and really that what we found and realized in two days of thinking about our publications, what we were doing, that we really didn't have anything in our publications on promoting positive mental health and prevention. It was all intervention for kids with, with challenges. So that's really what lit my fire. Gotcha. And then from that, uh, part of your fire uh, was creating Every Moment Counts. Could you just... Uh, talk a little bit about that, and that's been your most of your life work since then, right? In terms of occupational therapy, anyway. Yeah, for right. Uh, we just have our 10-year anniversary uh, when this initiative was launched. But what happened was, I began to publish more and asked to publish more related to children's mental health, and I started reading uh, probably around 2005. Um, after my dissertation, which really focused a lot on social emotional learning and occupation based services for low income urban youth, um, I started reading about this public health approach to mental health. Georgetown had one of its first monographs on that around 2008. And then I had an opportunity to write a book for AOTA. And I spent a long time reading about this tiered public health framework and what mental health promotion is. There's actually whole books on mental health promotion and mental health literacy and positive psychology and all of that I was mulling around and it really shaped the 2011 book that I edited on mental health promotion, prevention and intervention, a guiding framework for occupational therapy in working with children and youth. So um, I had several other authors as a part of that book and we all agreed from the start that the book would not be about just intervention for those with challenges, but for every group of children we, we had a chapter on like ADHD, learning disabilities, autism, 
we were going to focus on how to help them be mentally healthy. And so after the book came out, um, it's a, it, I remember just thinking, well, who really cares if nobody reads it, if they don't really digest this material, and if it's not applied, it, it really doesn't matter you know, that this book was published. And, and there's so many publications that really aren't applied in practice. So I started learning about knowledge translation and implementation, and I developed this building capacity process. And so I really didn't get funding, but I said, well, what if I brought together 14 uh, OTs to be a part of a community of practice to read the whole book? And every two chapters discuss the chapters and how they could apply it to practice. And so we did that and they were so excited about um, thinking about mental health as not diminishing mental illness only, but promoting positive mental health. And so then midstream in that six month process, um, I heard about funding from the Ohio Department of Ed and they wanted something related to mental health. So we, the 14 OTs and myself, you know, our, the question, the guiding question, this one meeting was, now that you know about this framework and occupation-based practice, what should practice in schools look like? And it was during those three hours that we set, we really talked about a lot of things, but we said it can't be one hour a day. It has to be embedded throughout the day. And, and we envisioned Every Moment Counts. We were funded for 720000 for three years. And it was that group of OT change leaders and myself that really developed everything over three years, implemented it, and evaluated it. And then it's just carried on since then. It's, it's been really um, an amazing journey. And it seems like, um, and I don't know if it's, it's your, your interest in public health, but when you go to your, your website, which is everymomentcounts.org, um, is you just have incredibly user-friendly resources that talk to different um, communities, you know, that, right. that talk to the occupational right. therapist, but you also, you know, give us language that we can use to talk to administrators and, you know, very much about capacity building and, and what can we do to, to help transform practice? Um, and how, where did those roots kind of come from in terms of um, what you were seeing? And, and I think I was fortunate enough to, to be in Ohio for a number of years and um, it just seemed a lot of the, and I met a lot of the OTs because you started with 14, but how many OTs did you end up training in the state of Ohio by the time? I don't know, I'm sure it's still going on. Um, well, we replicated that building capacity process throughout Ohio as a part of the grant. We reached over 200 OTs and that was published in AJOT where we did see that learning over time within a community of practice sharing success stories and challenges that the therapists we saw um, statistically significant improvements in not only their knowledge of this framework, but their beliefs that they should be a part of mental health initiatives in school and then action, they did more. And um, we, our goal was to take this underground OT practice that OTs say were holistic but they can't describe what we're doing um, to take it above ground. And so actually that initiative is now within an online course and I've shared the information sheet for our listeners. Um, and, and we've implemented this across the country and capstone students are implementing it and OTs in different states. And we did make it interdisciplinary. So the website strategically we knew that one or two OTs or one or two counselors in a school can't do this work. We really need all adults serving youth to tune into mental health and to be able to be a mental health promoter. Not everybody's a mental health provider, but everybody needs to be a mental health promoter within this tiered framework. Um, and teachers love this information. Other school personnel, um, it really needs to be everyone. 
Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. What I, I think what I also really appreciated is it seemed that, because I was lucky enough to know a number of, of different OTs that you worked with, that um, they felt stronger about what they were doing and more confident about what they were doing. And I think even approaching administrators and even the Department of Education to really look at, you know, size of caseloads and what they were, what was realistic and really not just realistic, but what was best for um, the children and adolescents that they were serving. And I don't know if that came fully out of every moment counts, but I know Ohio has some caps in terms of the number of, of kids that can be on a caseload. And I'm in a state now where there there isn't a cap. And you know, I uh, was talking to an OT not too long ago that was trying to see 200 kids and um, you just, you can't. Um, and so I don't know if, if that was coming from every moment counts or not, but. Well, uh, I think we've addressed that, but I, I, I think there are a lot of issues related to caseload workload. And the bottom line is IDEA, the law that brought us, you know, full force into schools states that our services should be LRE in the least restrictive environment to the maximum extent possible. So that means the gen ed environment. And so what we try to get therapists to do is not an outdated clinic-based model, no matter how many kids are on their caseload. But when they when we integrate services in the natural context and we think about these tiers, universal being all kids or at a classroom level, um, tier two would be small group, and then tier one, which would be maybe more of your caseload model. When we integrate services in the natural context, we have access to all students, and we maximize the impact of our services. So all children can benefit from what we're providing. And um, we did one study looking at integrated services years ago, and the principal said, I want to get the biggest bang out of my buck. So I want you integrated in the natural context. There are still too many supervisors of OTs who don't have up-to-date information or are mis misinformed. And then there are too many OTs who are stuck in a pull-out clinic-based model, which is not best practice. And so I think we have to work smarter, not harder. And you've heard of that saying before. So there's a, um, a really nice illustration of, um, you know, the different tiers of looking at a public health model. Um, and so how did you sort of get interested in it? You just felt that, you know, it was the way for you to kind of address the, the highest number of kids possible? And Well, it goes back to that public health framework, a public health, a tiered public health approach to mental health. And Tiered services um, have been a part of education for 20 years at least now, or more. And RTI is a tiered model. PBIS is a tiered model. And so what we're doing with Every Moment Counts, it's the same type of tiered model. But one thing, I, I make a huge distinction. Sometimes you'll see the pyramid with tier one being 80% of kids who don't have challenges. Well, really, tier one is all children and youth, that we need to focus on promotion, promoting what we want, uh, positive mental health in children with and without disabilities and or mental health challenges. So that's why our pyramid, you'll see, looks 
different. And, and, and um, there's a lot of information and we're really moving more toward this um, mental health promotion and prevention, but I do find that a lot of resources gloss over promotion and go right to prevention of problems. So tier one mental health promotion is all about evidence-based strategies that help children be mentally healthy. So it does include a lot from positive psychology. Um, and so what we do as OTs in applying that, we really believe that what we do impacts how we feel and function. So we're not doing talk therapy, we're really helping children participate in occupations and interactions throughout the day that help them be mentally healthy. So that's tier one. Tier two is a little more specific and it's tuning into all those at risk. That is students with disabilities that are at higher comorbid risk of mental health challenges. Kids in poverty, those who've been um, bullied, even with obesity, we see increased mental health challenges. And so here we're a little more specific and I think for OTs, because we all come into practice with a knowledge of running groups, we, um, what I love to see is OTs who are running small groups during lunch and recess with those tier two kids at risk with maybe peer buddies. Um, so um, that's where we can serve more than one on our caseload during these non-academic times. And then tier three, we really focus, we're usually not the go-to person for those with identified mental illness, but we need to help school personnel create environments that help children with mental illness, mental disorders, be able to succeed using accommodations and creating um, reduced stress, sensory friendly environments. Um, and then how would you say that that is differs from a multi-tiered system of support? Well, MTSS is a buzzword now. And I've seen it with four levels. And I don't think, I don't like to pick apart the different levels, but I think it's very similar to this tiered public health framework. And the whole gist is, you know, really tuning in to all students, doing work to promote health, and then to prevent health challenges. So I, I see them very much similar. Yeah, and I think it's, I know when I've taught public health models to students that um, I think those of us that have a little more experience, it's maybe, I don't know if it's easier for us to, to see the big picture, um, but a lot of times, you know, when, you know, when students kind of come in and sort of their expectation of what they're going to be doing in the school, a lot of times they really do see this one-on-one -on -one intervention. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of nudging. Um, and I think that uh, your, uh, you know, just the support that you provide on the website and the other trainings that you do really mm -hmm. help to help OTs understand, you know, what that can look like. Um, right, right. But could you talk about how um, looking at this kind of tiered approach can influence OT, our process of evaluation and intervention and, and how we're practicing? Right. Well, I do think working at the various tiers and actually even with the tiers, um, they're not really dissected very clearly. So if an OT is, is providing services or co-teaching in the classroom, she or he is going to have her eye out or his eye out on children who are struggling. So even though you're doing a tier three or tier one type of service, you're layering in the supports for the children who may be struggling more. So they blend together, but that's a skilled therapist really has those skills. But um, I do think we need to shift. I, I would say in the 90s and before that, it was very one-on-one -on -one intervention and then consultation became really big. And I think consultation um, has its place, but teachers are really stressed and overwhelmed. And so consultation, if we're just asking them to do more, um, I think that's problematic. And then they may struggle with having some therapist tell them to do this, do this, do this in the classroom. So I think when we add to our um, approaches, like co-teaching, which Jane K. Smith 
um, that we all know and um, cherish. She was the one, one of the first that um, got me hooked on and thinking about co-teaching with her Right Start program. So that's going into the classroom and doing with the teacher or doing a unit of, a, of um, something related to what she or he is teaching. Coaching strategies are gaining a lot more attention. So that's working with and in our cafeteria and recess programs, we're really coaching. We're developing relationships with the supervisors, modeling the kinds of things that we would like them to do. And modeling is very powerful. So I think, um, too, in, in applying this tiered approach, um, we do take our students at Cleveland State University into Cleveland schools and they implement the cafeteria and recess programs. And by doing that, they learn how to implement a tier one service and evaluation is different. Evaluation will be more like doing an environmental scan, which we have on our website. It's analyzing the context, context the sensory, the physical, the social emotional factors. And then the program is catered to this, the specific needs of that cafeteria context, whether it's third graders or fifth graders or whatever. And so I do think it's a different skill set than one-on-one -on -one intervention. And um, our students need experiences and therapists need, um, they need to develop, they have the skills, they just need to develop them. And I see even practicing therapists kind of scratching their head and thinking, you know, how could I do that? But then we have I call them maverick OTs who just <laughs> jump in and do it right. and they know it's right and, mm -hmm. and they, they have the confidence to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know um, I had a, one of my former students uh, way back when um, had a son with Down syndrome that was in speech therapy in a public school and um, went to an IEP meeting and the, the speech therapist, um, she was asking her about, because we were teaching, you know, let's... Uh, you know, <laughs> that um, therapy is not this 30 minutes a week in a room. It really is how are we uh, incorporating that into into the this young person's every day. And the, the speech therapist said, I'm responsible for 30 minutes in this room. And that was kind of like, <laughs> so she came and we sort of problem solved how we could, how we could look at that. And, uh, but, but I think it's, it's helping, you know, what is really kind of going to be best for this for this child. I've been um, working a lot with some Canadian OTs recently that, um, and, and Canadians are really, the their OTs are, are in the schools, but not to the level that we are and are starting to get a little bit more involved in the schools. And and some of them shake their heads on occasion about, you know, some what school-based practices. And and one of them in particular is, and she does transition like like I do. And her, her point is, why are we working on anything that is not going to help this kid when they're out of school? You know, that we have a limited amount of time that we have to support these young people and you know how do we kind of get the best bang for their buck or give them you know the the skills that they really need you know so they can be successful for a lifetime and obviously those positive mental health skills are uh, a huge uh, part of that so uh, fun little story this um, young man I saw uh, recently is uh, uh, in the marching band with uh, with the high school that he's going to and he's um, uh, just saw him in, the, in a 4th of July parade. So it's kind of fun that apparently these communication skills he was developing have moved from beyond that 30 minutes a, a day or 30 minutes a week that was there. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about um, Every Moment Counts and the types of things that you're doing really to, to focus on uh, participation and, and you know promoting positive mental health throughout yeah. the day? Well, you mentioned band and... Um... You mentioned doing work that really helps children do more than that 30-minute session. And so the programs that we envisioned were really embedded throughout the day in the classroom, um, in the lunchroom, recess. The OTs, we, when we were envisioning these, they said, mealtimes is a part of our scope of practice. Play and social participation. Why aren't we automatically leaders and, and really helping foster health during lunch and recess. Uh, and then making leisure matter. There's so much 
literature on the importance of structured leisure, read Larson's work on um, youth um, development. And uh, I, I find that leisure is one of those forgotten occupations for a lot of OTs, but we even cite part of the law that states that if students with disabilities need supports and services to help them participate in leisure, it should be provided. So I will start with that one. Making leisure matter is really based on occupational justice, that all children should have a right to participate in meaningful out-of-school leisure. And so um, we started out with individual leisure coaching for children and youth with disabilities or mental health challenges that had no leisure. And we developed OT leisure coaching steps to help them participate. And then we um, really branched off into more a tiered approach to leisure promotion. What could we do at tier two with those at risk? So some of the small group interventions that actually at the Cleveland Clinic Children's Rehab, they've developed a lot of leisure groups that work on fostering hobbies and interests. And um, we um, also do some tier one, what could be done at the school-wide level to foster leisure. So doing an environmental scan of leisure in the community, sharing that with parents. Um, so that's one of our initiatives. It's a lot of fun. And the cafeteria and recess programs are six-week, one-day-a-week programs that really focus on promoting participation and enjoyment for all students and building capacity of supervisors to be effective in their job. Most of the time, they're not given any information. So principals love these programs. And we really focus heavily on those soft skills that kids can develop during these unstructured times. So you can work with children one-on-one -on -one in a little room, but learning occurs best in the natural context, doing real things with real peers. So we do focus heavily on friendship promotion, how to be a good friend, having a mealtime conversation. It's a life skill respecting differences and including others, eating healthy, and then certainly during recess, active play. And so we have seen, um, due to the pandemic, I describe it as um, an occupational disruption that has decreased opportunities to participate. And then what we're seeing in kids is decreased occupational endurance the endurance needed to concentrate throughout the day, to socialize throughout the day, to interact with peers. And so then what we see, I'm hearing a lot more reports of bullying and um, depression, anxiety. Um, so really a lot of the Every Moment Counts programs are in huge demand right now. Mental health <laughs> is across the globe from invitations to speak in Pakistan, to Ireland, to the UK. Um, and I'm doing a lot of it virtually, but it's, it really has caused some um, disruptions. So that's a little bit about our programs. And then the other one is really uh, building capacity, really doing a lot of work to build capacity of school personnel mm -hmm. to um, promote mental health. Gotcha. And I think we, as you said, it's it's such a root to our profession, um, and it's just you know helping, you know some programs I think uh, spend a little bit more time or emphasis on it in terms of what their curriculum is and and the opportunities they provide students. But um, you know it is it's how I think we're different than some of our other rehab colleagues, and it's a lot of uh, you know what what we have to to be value added to a school certainly. Um, and then in the other other work that we're doing, I know even in in the adult uh, rehab world, there's um, more emphasis now on on leisure, certainly in terms of um, looking to be a little bit more universal in, in the types of evaluations that we're doing and the interventions uh, that we're providing. Um, so do you, do you want to talk a little bit about the types of, of service delivery models that are important for occupational therapy? practitioners as we're looking to, to provide, the, provide these kinds of initiatives. Right. I think, um, as I mentioned before, shifting from a pull-out clinic-based one-on-one model to an integrated model. Um, and I think one of the myths is that um, 
services need to be, when people hear educationally relevant, they think it has to be in the classroom. But we really need to focus on both academic and non-academic settings. So sometimes when I present to therapists and I'm talking about our cafeteria and lunch programs, I almost see a deer in the headlights look. And, and at one state, um, someone raised their hand and said, I, I never thought about being in the cafeteria before. And so this is where um, I think we haven't taken seriously our full scope of practice. And um, that's one of the things that we're trying to really, um, really hit home with. The other thing is really shifting from a bottom up to a top down model. So bottom up, just looking at component function. And in Ohio, for example, there's been some issues recently. The reason for referral form for OT has fine motor listed with a check, you know, you could check that or other. And so some OTs are saying we only could address, or some supervisor, supervisor saying we could only address fine motor. And this is where we have to be myth busters and uh, assert ourselves related to misinformation. That first of all, we better know the law because the law idea states that we focus on participation, function, even prevention, but it doesn't state what areas we address as OTs. We define that based on our scope of practice. And so that's where we have to keep going back to scope of practice and um, correcting misinformation. So I think this is an issue we're trying to tackle in Ohio. And um, OTs who have OTs working in the state departments of ed, and I presented in several states where that's the case. And we used to have Kathy Chiney in Ohio who was um, representing related service providers. But we have to have a connection at the state level to be able to influence how they're saying that we're defined. And too many OTs are supervised by non-OTs. But in districts like the Cleveland district, even Columbus, where there is an OT director, then it's easier because that leader, that person can uh, articulate our role and supervise whether it's 20 or 40 therapists, you know, in that area. Right. And so related to that, in terms of, you know, I think we fought long and hard to try to get Medicaid reimbursement in the schools. Um, how do you, is in terms of that one-on-one -on -one service delivery, how do you negotiate that? Is it, you know, I, I so I've been very fortunate in my in my career that my my school um, that I that I did my you know my where I was kind of a uh, a paid consultant at a school was really to help whenever um, the OT there was kind of overwhelmed by caseload because most of the kids at the Ohio State School for the Blind where I was needed OT services um, and. But there, there, the superintendent was wonderful and basically said, whatever a kid, a kid needs, a kid gets. I certainly didn't know who was on Medicaid or who wasn't on Medicaid in terms of billing and reimbursement. Um, but I know I've talked to some OTs that feel a little bit of pressure in terms of kind of maintaining that one-on-one -on -one billable service and, and that sort of thing. How do you, how do you kind of address Ugh, that? It's very complicated. Some schools are not, they don't even bill the wealthier districts. So there's so much, um, there's so many differences. OTs are, who are hired by the school themselves tend to become a bigger part of the culture of the school. And I know many OTs that if they feel something is needed, they do it within our scope of practice and they're running. Um, small lunch gr bunch groups or doing the, you know, some, some of our universal programs um, and making the case for it that they are serving kids on their caseload. So I, I think um, medic, yeah, that, that threw a wrench in this whole individual needing a plan of care and all of that. Um, I would just say, I would keep going back to the law idea that even 15% of funds are allotted for children, um, students not on our caseload. 
that's part of RTI. So I do consult with uh, practice senderos. And when you have the leader at the top saying, I want you to work within a workload model and, do, and provide tier one and tier two services, um, I think that changes and nudges therapists and moves them out of this direct one-on-one -on -one model, which is not best practice. And, and so I think the more we have therapists who are doing that and leaders and demonstrating our value in that regard, then, then um, we, we have to apply some of these other strategies like coaching. Again, I think small groups are very powerful. And environment-focused intervention, that was, um, you mentioned Canadians. Um, Anna B, and they, they and um, really environment-focused intervention is when we change the environment, we can impact the person's participation. And I think we've always done that as OTs, but now we have a term for it. Yeah, and I think too, like when you look at, at other teachers that are more specialists in terms, you know, that are not classroom teachers, but maybe they're reading specialist or whatever it is, they're, they're providing interventions and in a lot of different methods. You know, they're not just, they're not just doing one-on-one -on -one interventions with kids and pulling them out. Like, so even within kind of, my wife is a teacher educator. So sometimes we have some of these discussions over dinner about some of the, the, um, the ways that we um, interact. Uh, so do you have an example of maybe a, a school district that's done kind of a really nice job of kind of moving beyond kind of that one-on-one -on -one clinic based model? Well, actually, when we were starting our work in 2011, Carol Conway, who is a therapist at Hudson City Schools, a wealthy district, um, she knew they were really stuck in this pull-out, one-on-one therapy model that she knew was not best practice, but that parents really viewed therapy as their kids go to school not just to be educated, but to receive therapy. And the bottom line is, children receive therapy in schools to help them participate. So um, what we started with is um, this, and, and Carol always said, we can't do every moment counts work if we're doing just this one-on-one -on -one pull out model. So what we did is we started the conversation. We did an in-service with related service providers and the director of um, special ed to get everybody on the same page about why integrated services is best practice. It's the law and um, theories of motor control and motor learning support that, et cetera. And so we got the, the therapists, related service providers on board. And then we decided um, instead of announcing, they were very concerned that if we announced we're gonna do this integrated model, parents would buck, you know, would push back. So we developed a community of practice in the school where we invited representatives from paraeducators, parents, speech therapists, teachers, special and, and regular ed, um, administrators. And we did a couple in-services, short ones. And then they had we had discussion groups and we said, we're going to look for the open doors and start integrating services demonstrate the success stories. And so it was really a lot of awareness raising. And within about nine to 12 months, they shifted. The therapist did a time study in the beginning looking at service provision. They shifted from 40% integrated to 80%. So it, it does take strategic thinking and um, getting everybody on board. It was very successful. Good. Well, it's interesting. I, um, during COVID, uh, was helping to supervise some level, level one students remotely. Uh, so that at a, at a residential, kind of a, a, um, a pretty exclusive residential school. Um, and so I had some, some level one students. And one of the things we were, you know, one of the questions that the students started with was, you know, have you ever worked with an OT with these transition age students and all of them had been had learned to ride a bike from the ot in their in this high-end you know residential school um in a in a and it was a bike riding class that they all had and i just thought um you know if you have you know a, a place that is obviously not billing medicaid is you know kind of really 
the OT there in the administration is really looking at what are the what are the things that are important that these you know young people are really going to need later on. And it was you know well within our scope of practice, you know. And they but they all all the kids raved about their great OT experience um, because of you know important you know focusing on on the important things that are going to you know hopefully give them a skill skill, skill for a lifetime. So. Um, so when you think about uh, our practice in schools, um, and you know we've you've used the word distinct value, um, what do you think it's really important as we're sharing that with administrators, families, um, other personnel in the school, so that we're kind of practicing um, in the way that we think is going to help the most number of kids and and really have the best outcomes? I I think it's participation participation and you know not everybody understands the term occupation but I like to think of the activities inter interactions that foster health within our scope of practice those nine areas of occupation um, that are listed in our practice framework so um, yeah I think certainly we came into schools with special ed legislation 1975 the floodgates opened and you know it just you know we are the third largest practice area um, so legislation is critical but secondly what what's happened since 2015 the ESSA every student succeed act which replaced no child left behind um, is focusing more on health uh, mental and physical health within MTSS, so these tiered systems of support, and we are listed as CISPs. That's a hard one to say. Specialized Instructional Support Personnel. So that legislation was enacted in 2015, giving states, um, you know, kind of, um, they're responsible for implementing this law, coming up with um, their their guidelines, et cetera, their plan. And so one of the problems is we are a part, we related service providers are listed as CISPs, but we're really not at the table yet. So this law, No Child Left Behind focused a lot on testing and academic success. This law is really focusing more on health. So that's the other thing. There's more and more emphasis on health that when children are healthy, both physically and mentally, they do better in school and in life. The other um, thing that's happened is this whole child framework is actually whole school, whole community, whole child framework is being adopted throughout the country in most states. Um, Ohio Department of Ed, for example, has adopted it and we have this whole child um, framework advisory group I've sat in uh, during COVID on some of the virtual meetings, but we don't have related service providers represented in that advisory group or ESSA. ESSA in most states, has an they have to have an advisory group. Related service providers are not represented. So one of the challenges now I see is we are so pigeonholed into special ed and needing to be educationally relevant that the rest of school um, population, school personnel don't, I think, always recognize us as healthcare providers in schools. So actually, one of the um, whole child framework meetings, there was, uh, I think, an OT from Children's Hospital in Columbus. Well, why do we have to go to a hospital-based OT to advise us on school health? when we have OTs and PTs in schools that can be utilized. So that's right now I see a big tension across the country that we are not at the table related to these health initiatives and more and more money is going into school health um, centers and we're not, we're just not at the table. PTs could be addressing obesity branch prevention. Um, physical fitness and we can certainly be addressing mental health social emotional um, health um, and and so I, I see it as a problem I see us needing to advocate and 
um, be a part of those state advisory committees. So do you have advice for OTs out there that are interested in getting to the table? How do, how do we get at the table? Um, what would maybe be a, a first step be for them? That are really well, um, I guess I'll, I could describe, you know, maybe things we can do at a district, at a state, and then national level. Um, so at a district level, I do know, and um, many districts have wellness committees. In Cleveland um, district, I know Karen thompson Repus is the OT director. She and some of her OTs and PTs do attend their monthly wellness committee meetings. And I actually presented on the comfortable cafeteria at one of them. So I think um, looking at districts and at the school level, what committees are there that we should be at the table for. I know OTs in other states that are on their school's mental health um, advisory group or PBIS or SEL. So I think we need to make sure we're at the table, even at a school level. At the state, um, this whole child advisory committee, I have contacted them. Uh, to try and get on that, and I miss the deadline. They, they don't advertise those things very well. But I think we need to um, look into those kind of advisory committees and even where money is going for school health and see how we can you know access that. Um, so S advisory committees, for example, I've never seen any state where an OT is, is involved. And then at the national level, actually, I stay connected to Abe Saffer, who is our lobbyist that oversees school-related uh, legislation at our national level. And he, probably three years ago, started kind of just pestering me and saying, why don't OTs know about ESSA? Why aren't OTs doing anything about it? So every he would this would happen every couple months. And um, I decided that we should do something about it with Amy Cooper Smith, who's an OT in New York. She worked for the New York um, Department, um, their New York um, schools. Pam Stevenson, who's been involved in AOTA, she's in Virginia. We decided to start this grassroots OTSA advocacy network. And we decided not to do it under AOTA because we knew we could do things more quickly and also involve non-members. And so it's very grassroots. We have about three virtual meetings a year. We have our already over 250 OTs. So it's just worth word of mouth. And our goal is to educate OT practitioners and we have some students about ESSA, ESSA you know, have a platform discussing how can we be at the table and address health at tier one and tier two, and then um, share success stories. And it's been really exciting to see the OTs who are already doing tier one, tier two services that address health, social, emotional, physical health. Um, and so we developed two information sheets that is, they're, they're gonna be shared um, with this podcast. The short one is for school administrators to educate them about our roles under IDEA and ESSA, and then our scope of practice. And the longer one is a little more um, dense. It's for OT practitioners to educate them. So I think that's a start, but. Yeah, do you know, I wonder, um, so I'm involved in a lot of things that involve the Workforce Innovation Opportunities Act, which is, specifically for employment uh, for transition age students with, with intellectual and developmental disabilities and other disabilities. But um, so every three years, the state has to do a, a report to the, the federal government to kind of give them an update. I don't know if ESSA, I think, I'll, I don't know if they, maybe you've got a student around somewhere or yeah, I'll, I'll do some looking too for you to see it because every state has to have a plan in terms of how they're, they're addressing um, some of these federal initiatives and kind of have a, a regular report card. And then I know for the Workforce Innovation Opportunities Act, every three years they have to update it and give them, so I don't know if that's a, a way that we can get on the inside and, and uh, 
Um, because you, as you said, you know, there are people that are making decisions that are trying to make the best decisions they have. But if you don't have an occupational therapist that's there and, and talking about how we can support uh, those folks, then, um, you know, they, they don't know what we can do sometimes. Right. So. We're underutilized. So I presented recently in Arkansas, their Department of Ed for Related Service Providers, and the OT who um, represents, um, who's with the Department of Ed, said, we're just so underutilized. We, you know, we, it's like we're so pigeonholed into just working with kids with disabilities that, you know, our, this whole knowledge that we have about health is not being utilized. And, and we have so much to offer that can help all students be healthy uh, physically, socially, emotionally. So, um, and I like to think for OTs, what makes us very different in, in the mental health realm, I like to say that we do doing therapy, we don't do talk therapy. So we help children participate in the things that we know will help them be mentally healthy. So I think it's really critical that uh, we're a bit of a squeaky wheel like Abe was with me and that people eventually say, and, and there are a lot of OT practitioners across the country very interested in ESSA, capstone students I hear from, they wanna be on the network, they're very interested in ESSA, so I think that's a really good sign that just talking it up, having a platform to convene, that's not um, requiring money and it's not overly involved in terms of time. I think too many groups have monthly meetings. It's just too much. But maybe three meetings a year can do some nice things. Uh, we audio, we record our meetings. We share information in our Google Drive folder. So um, we try to keep it simple. Yeah, that's great. And I, I um, when we were uh, sharing resources before this, I loved your um, occupation wheel. Is that your own creation that that you created to help explain our, our scope of practice and our listeners will have access to this um, after the podcast as well. Um, you wanna talk a little bit about? And I do yeah. love that. So I did see it was a social work scale that used a similar circle with the areas that they were looking at. Um, but obviously I developed this one. My daughter's a graphic designer. She She's my designer, yeah. And um, so we basically, I was looking at AOTA's website and other websites. I, I could not find anything that was you know, clear in depicting our nine areas of occupation that we address. And I think we need something like this because I look at a lot of evaluation forms that tend to still be bottom up. Fine motor, handwriting, visual perception, sensory processing, and I want to say, where's the occupation? <laughs> so this graphic then takes those nine areas and we came up with, there was a, a group from this ESSA network that gave input to what are the, the things that we would look at if, in children and youth during, during the school day. Um, and so we came up with these and we've actually applied this. I am in the process of developing an occupational therapy therapy wellness screening that would kind of look at wellness in these areas of occupation and in consulting with Sendero therapists in presenting this and then having them pilot the screening um, we kind of looked at how it shifted their practice and over a period of three or four months they had to come up with action plans more were addressing health management mental health literacy health uh, more were addressing sleep and rest, more were addressing leisure and play and social participation, areas that they hadn't typically uh, addressed. So I do think uh, it could help therapists, but um, one of the sheets then could be used to share with other school personnel. And one of the OTs in um, a school in this region shared it with the school psychologist who oversaw um, referrals for OT and she just had that little fine motor thing and she said you know 
I didn't know you addressed all of these areas. We need to change this form to um, depict more of the things that OTs would address. So um, that's education. We can't just hand people the form though. We have to hand it to them and then talk about it and give examples of how we would address these areas of occupation. I do know OTs who are addressing like sleep, rest, and school. And that could be embedded in a handwriting lesson. You know, there's a lot of great resources on right. sleep, rest. And, but you, um, you think about when you look at, and it, it is a very cool wheel and people have access to it. Um, so you think about talking with a parent about the goals that you're working on with their kid. And what do they want you working on? <laughs> you know, it's like really, um, are they, do they care about uh, handwriting or do they care about you know, kind of some of the, the bigger issues that all of our kids struggle with, you know, the, to, to really help them with um, the big picture. It reminded me a little bit of um, a service menu uh, in terms of, we have a, a transition service menu that I um, uh, had come across for transition that really just kind of defined what our scope of practice is for that age group. Um, and so, uh, but I just like that it's so much, it's a bigger picture. Um, in terms of what, what it is that we actually do or what we can do when we have, you know, kind of motivated therapists that um, are really kind of able to see the big picture and, and again, that, that child's long-term outlook. Right. Uh, I mean, and I think we just have to have it as a part of our lens. One of the OTAs in the region, she, um, you know, I asked them to tune into recess and lunch and she for a couple kids on her caseload with autism or autistic children um, they couldn't go outside for lunch because of safety issues and she just said this is not acceptable so she made a point of taking two out with her at a time to really work on safety issues play skills that's advocacy that's demonstrating our value if um, therapists were saying this past year that kids were eating in their classroom watching videos. So with a health lens um, for us as OTs, we should look at that and say that's not a healthy practice. And that how can we change that sh scenario? We can put a conversation starter on the whiteboard and encourage conversations during lunch or whatever. Um, so, so I think it can. Uh, be helpful with nudges um, for therapists to really think about how, what they're doing. Yeah, and I think you're right that um, <laughs> it's not the, I mean, sometimes we just have to be, we have to question what we're being asked to do um, because um, it's not always really what's going to be the best interest of the of the kids that we're trying to, to support. So um, do you want to just talk a little bit about like, so how would people get information we're, we're going to have uh, these documents on occupationaltherapy.com but if they're um, if they're interested in this the OTSA advocacy network you're part of how do they um, get access to that okay well two things for every moment counts when you go to the website and this is the second iteration it really is dense information dense and it really needs to be approached like a book there are everything's free and downloadable since it was grant funded but sign up to stay connected uh, we will be uh, we had live webinars this past summer um, with with a lot of our ot change leaders we will be selling them on demand in the fall but there is a free online course that I developed with Dr. Sarah Nielsen from University of North Dakota. It was SAMHSA um, funded. And um, I'm sharing an information sheet on that and then the link. So uh, for people who really don't have funds, they could use these resources. There's five one-hour webinars with facilitation guides to guide a team to learn about this and then think about how they would implement it. So that's Every Moment Counts. For the ESSA, um, right now people can email me and I believe my email is on those information sheets. Um, the OTSA Advocacy Network, we do have a Facebook page, which is fun. Um, and sometimes it's more active than page, not. Yeah. 
yes and and so it's a nice way to share any information related to ESA school health um, tier one and tier two services so those are two um, or three actually strategies wonderful well sue thank you so much for your time i know that our listeners learned a lot i certainly learned a lot and thank you also for what you do for the profession and i i think um, you've certainly transformed the way that i think about school-based ot and i know you've done that for literally thousands of others to the benefit of thousands and thousands of kids that we serve so thanks for all that you do and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon Oh, thank you, Dennis. It was a pleasure. And um, I always say, stay the course. There's a lot to do out there. There sure is. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you.